Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. That's about it. Oh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, back member of the Kerrigan Institute. Instructor Rocky Mountain, Georgia Southern, and I'm in Oklahoma, just outside Oklahoma City right now, and be home in a couple days. Oh, have you been hit by the storms or anything that's been sweeping across the country? Yeah, that's the part we have to look at, <laughs> trying to drive back from here over the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, especially here, the past two days has been like super overcast, super windy, and just super rainy. Like today is the first time I actually was able to walk outside. In like probably two days, it was just utterly disgusting, and it looked like night like the whole past two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet we have a lot of listeners dealing with weather themselves right now. I've just holed up at home yeah. here in Ohio for whatever reason. We've dodged that bullet for the most part. It's been real dark and gloomy, but it's not particularly cold. I mean, it was very windy one day, but anyway. Okay, um, everybody, we have. Some uh, studies here, uh, well, news bits here. The first one I wanted to get, especially Mike's input on this. I know you've been speaking about CBD lately, Mike. Um, Strength and Muscle Sport News. I first saw this on Rick Collins' Instagram, and then I subsequently got a couple of news bits to follow up from the FDA, but... Uh, FDA warns 15 companies for illegally selling various products containing cannabidiol as agency details safety concerns. And uh, Rick's comment was, not a good day for the CBD supplement market. 15 new FDA warning letters. If you are in the market, get experienced legal advice. And obviously, Rick's probably <laughs> welcoming mm. customers to uh, to help with that. But, of course, he's someone who can. Um, yeah. Now, let me just get to the FDA letter, Mike, and then I'll get your sort of analysis of this. FDA lacks science to declare CBD grass status, uh, and it issues warnings to companies selling CBD-containing products. It says the Food and Drug Administration issued warning letters to 15 companies for illegally selling products containing uh, cannabidiol in ways that violate the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, so the FD&C. 
The FDA also published a revised consumer update detailing the safety concerns about CBD products more broadly. And if I didn't mention, this is from late November Institute of Food Technologists. Um, The FDA is also indicating that it can't conclude that CBD is generally recognized as safe or has grass status uh, for its use in human or animal foods. The FDA is exploring potential pathways for various types of CBD products to be lawfully marketed. Uh, And I don't want to interject halfway through this, but one of the things that's jumping out to me is the FDA indicates its concern about how it can't conclude or that it's not going through them. Now, I get that they're the law of the land in many ways, but I'm smelling um, that they feel slighted, right, that the power – uh, the transfer of funds and power is, isn't funneling through them right now, mm-hmm. and you know, and they're getting salty about it. That's again, that's my aside. But so they're exploring potential pathways. They are trying to conclude in their way that it's it's safe. Uh, it says the FDA plans to provide an update on its progress regarding the agency's approach to these products in the coming weeks. Quote. We remain concerned that some people wrongly think that the myriad of CBD products on the market, many of which are illegal, have been evaluated by the FDA and determined to be safe, or that trying CBD can't hurt, said FDA Principal Deputy Commissioner Amy Abernethy. Uh, It says these products have not been approved by the FDA, and importantly, some of the products are foods to which CBD has been added and under the FD&C Act, it is illegal to do so. Uh, and then they finally uh, they end this, this document by saying CBD products cannot be dietary supplements because they do not meet the definition of a dietary supplement under the FD&C Act. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, Mike. <laughs> what, do you, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and to be honest, obviously I'm not an attorney. I'm just still trying to figure out what's going on, but... If you talk to some people in the industry like this, probably you can see it coming. Um, because for a while, the FDA didn't do anything. And about, it appears about a year and a half ago, all of a sudden, CBD just went crazy. So companies who were, you know, like Charlotte Web, who were selling it before that, were getting warning letters by just putting the letter CBD in a review that a customer had placed on their website. Uh, that was like considered a no-no. And then all of a sudden, CBD was kind of sort of, oh, it's okay to mention it. And some companies were even okay putting the amount of CBD on the label, advertising that, that it contained CBD. And then all of a sudden, everybody just went batshit crazy, right? You saw CBD everywhere, like crazy amount of claims, which, you know, according to Deshay and the way the FDA is set up right now, you can't be making uh, regarding that. And... The FDA seemingly didn't do much about it for quite a while. So I think this is the the first sort of action we're seeing related to that. And if you look at the press release that the FDA put out on their site, which is interesting that the FDA had a, a news release, which I guess is tells you that they're taking it pretty seriously. Um, they cite some toxicity uh, risks, which interestingly enough, they cite... Um, the approval of Epidiolex, there were some concerns in that, which is a totally in- interesting entity because Epidiolex is a CBD product that is approved as a medical drug, yep. even though it's basically just CBD. 
So that's kind of interesting. Uh, um, the, the warning letters that were sent out um, basically said that the companies were illegally selling CBD products in interstate commerce that claim to prevent, diagnose, mitigate, treat, or cure serious diseases, and they go on to list them. So from what I can tell, and again, maybe we can get Rick on at some point, it appears that the warning letters were sent regarding the claims that these companies were making about CBD. It doesn't look like they were sent just because they were manufacturing CBD. Well, if I can interject, I mean, it does say that they're not dietary supplements. They cannot be sold as dietary supplements. Right, which is what I find so... that's the part I can't figure out because there's still other companies that did not get a warning letter that I think could still sell CBD. So if it were saying across the board that, okay, CBD is now illegal, wouldn't everyone selling CBD get a warning letter? I don't know. So it's that's true. the part I couldn't quite figure out. Yeah, why, why 15 companies only, right? Yeah. And according to this, on the press release, it says that they were sent because the claims they were making regarding CBD were invalid. And that's totally true. I mean, there's some crazy-ass claims being made. And no matter what supplement it is, no matter how much data you have, obviously you can't claim that it's going to be in the realm of a drug. Right? It's a supplement, not a drug. Um, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Because um, the one question I would have then is... If you're selling a mixed hemp oil that happens to contain CBD because it's actually found in that product, as far as I can tell, and again, I'm not an attorney, I think that is still legal, although you may not be able to claim on the label CBD content. So they did make a thing here that says some of these products were in further violation because CBD was added to food. And some of the products were also marketed as dietary supplements, uh, despite products which contain CBD not meeting the definition of a dietary supplement. So it appears what they are also cracking down on is people adding CBD to everything, right? So if your protein powder now has CBD, the FDA has pretty good reason to say proteins never had CBD in it. This is something that you've added that is no longer a dietary supplement. Yeah. So from what I can tell, again, this is just my take on it, that appears to be what they're going after to start. But I do agree that it, it opens up a whole gray area of, is CBD even going to be considered a supplement? Because if you're manufacturing it from cannabis that is under the amount of THC, that as of now is still under the Department of Agriculture. So if you that is your raw material and you are selling say, a tincture of hemp oil, as far as I can tell, that still appears to be legal, although there's probably a lot of questions about that, too. Yeah, there seems to be a, a multiple uh, lines of attack from the FDA here, from, you know, adding it to foods and then selling it in interstate trade, which is a no-no, um, yep. to whether or not they're dietary supplements, uh, you know, the fact that they're not approved by the FDA. This sounds, again, me sort of just raging against this. And I mean, I don't use CBD in any way, so I don't have any vested interest in this. But when I read the FDA is indicating that it cannot conclude that CBD is is generally recognized as safe. 
Okay, I understand that that's the law of the land. I, I do understand that. But when they say it can't conclude, or and there's something later about how it says basically consumers don't know whether or not the FDA has evaluated it to be safe. They're really positioning themselves as the linchpin, right, between everything. Like, we have to be giving this seal of approval or not. We have to be doing this. And this is going to be an interesting tension, is all I'm saying, because the market is exploded. And in many ways, in fact, I think I saw Rick uh, Collins tweet about it or something, but there's going to be a lot of tension. Like, this may be almost too big for them to handle, but if we remember, they've squashed other things, like ephedra, right? I mean, so there are... It's going to be interesting how this plays out. Again, they're going to be updating us in several weeks, I guess it says. But let me uh, – let's ask Phil. Phil, do you have people at your gym that are trying it, and why are they trying it? Would they care yeah, if the FDA several, is behind it? I mean – I've had several people that tried it, but I don't – I can't think of any that are like, you got to have this. Um, my wife did it for a while, and it seemed to help with her – some anxiety and stuff she was having. Um, but like I said, I, even, I think she's not even taking it anymore. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't see a big problem around my place. You know, people will be like, ah, oh, whatever. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, 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 the people at my gym, and this might be odd to say, but the ones I know that uh, would have something to do with CBD get it from the plant itself. When they need it, <laughs> okay, so, yeah. <laughs> let's just say that. So yeah. they're not too worried about CBD getting banned. There was, um, I think it was Lewis Black. There was a stand-up comedian weeks ago. I was watching it, and he's just he did this whole little spiel. It was partly educational, but it was also you know he's very tongue in cheek and and <laughs> crass at times. But he's a very bright guy, and he's he's basically saying what you just said. Like all this explosion over CBD. So what? Smoke weed is kind of what he's saying. You know? yep. And I mean, I know there's you're talking about like different, literally different phytochemicals that are yeah. at work here and that kind of stuff. But it, it is sort of funny that yeah, for just if people are out for serious potency, I don't think they're worrying about what the FDA has to say when it, when they're <laughs> smoking pot. You know, so I'm sure people have talked about this a million times, but it's like a throwback to the prohibition years. You know, like tell everybody they can't have alcohol and a whole industry mm-hmm. crops up. There's simply too much pressure. And guess what? Now everybody drinks alcohol, you know, um, or at least they may. And I mean, obviously, that yeah. could be good or bad. But yeah. And that does make you wonder, too, if, you know, cannabis marijuana becomes federally legal, you know, across the entire U.S., is there any jurisdiction the FDA would have over CBD at that point? I don't know the answer, but I'm guessing they may yes, not no. have much jurisdiction because it's legal. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 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 So maybe they're trying to get something in before that. And, yeah. you know, in their safety concerns, they listed, you know, possible liver injury. And they, well, what's interesting about that is they cite that the marketing application for Epidiolex, right, which is a purified form of CBD, was approved by the FDA in 2018. So the FDA has approved Epidiolex, the high-dose CBD, and now they're saying that they've identified in that trial certain safety risks. But it was still approved. But they approved it, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but it's approved for prescription and lots of taxes. 
Exactly. So, so I think that's what they're kind of mad about. They said it was approved, but only as a drug, and we don't know what the effects are. There's drug interactions potentially with CBD, but there's drug interactions with grapefruit and your, you know, drugs that you're taking from your physician too. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, Phil, you're on to something there, whether it's taxes or just corporate big pharma. Like, it's different somehow for them, like, <laughs> than it is for the, the dietary supplement companies, which are, well, yes, there's risk inherent to having thousands of dietary supplement companies selling oh, something, yeah. right? It, monitoring and all that, as opposed to one big drug company that they can kind of audit or yeah. have actions against. I get that, but... Yeah, it, it a lot of this just you can read when you read some of these um, press releases. Like there's this very interest in uh, consolidating and protecting power where it exists now, right? And that means the FDA wants the authority. They want the drug applications and all the money and everything inherent to that, right? Um, partnering with big corporation type things. Yeah, it's interesting to play out. We're going to see if the free market wins out over extreme regulation here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the last thing, too, is that because it, they usually have to have a, a time of open comments, it does appear that they have a public hearing open and request for comments right now. So if you go to the FDA, uh, search for the warning, they'll be able to find a link uh, to that. So like, like Kratom had that whole thing where a lot of people wrote in and it kind of made them reevaluate it again so it's still kind of a quasi legal thing um, but right now there's about 4500 comments received and the FDA by law my understanding is they have to review all the comments so if people are interested in so one of the things I'm going to follow up on is you know placing comments there and you know if you can get enough public support then the FDA historically has change their mind about certain things. I so do. Maybe that'll have some effect. Yeah. I do wonder about that. Sometimes, again, this is maybe... Um, Sometimes they've disregarded it and said, screw it, we don't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, whether it's added sugars, right, or any of these things, what's the real value to opening up to public comments? Is it because they're listening? I hope. But it also yeah. could just be they could say, no, no, we tossed this out. We got input from all stakeholders. We got consumer input. We took that into our analysis. But did you – like to what extent did you really, right, as opposed to just being able to say we gave everybody their say and here's our ruling anyway, you know. Yeah. So yeah. – uh, I would say from what I've seen on the Kratom issue is that the – at least on that, the FDA, because of comments, did appear to, to change their tact on that. So that does give me some hope that they are listening compared to the ephedra days where even their own medical board didn't really find a reason to make it illegal. And they just said, nope, screw it. We'll, we'll make it illegal, kind of like pro hormones, right? We'll, we'll pull them off the market but because it's a safety concern. But you got four or six months, you know, well, it, it's, it's six months that you have to pull them off. You know, it's kind of like, well, you got, you know, many, many months just to remove them, but it's a safety concern. Well, why do you have like six months or whatever the time frame was then? So, yeah, keep yeah. selling something that's potentially toxic or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, listeners, I don't know if, if you use CBD or you're interested in that stuff. It, it's just something that affects lifters, I think. Uh, obviously, dietary supplement market is exploding, for, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. It's all over the professional conferences. I mean, Mike's been speaking on it. 
We yeah. saw Hector Lopez speak about it, and I mean, those are just two examples of of many. So it's getting legitimate attention. So anyway, um, I was remiss, I think, at the beginning. We are going to talk about absolute minimums. If I didn't get into that um, in any detail, uh, monitoring them, why you would assess your absolute training minimum, stuff like that. But I just wanted to uh, interject that again. Uh, here's the two potentially controversial. News, news pieces here. This first one, actually, I just got this from a colleague. I don't know why it was put in my mailbox, but this is back from March, but March of this year, so it's relatively new. Uh, the keto people aren't going to uh, like this one, uh, but it's from USA Today. It's not necessarily we're endorsing this or anything, but it's interesting. It says, crustworthy, keep bread in your diet. Uh, carbs in moderation offer some important nutrients. So this is from uh, Rasha Ali, it looks like, USA Today. It says, um, all the low-carb diet trends might have you thinking that eating a slice of bread is synonymous with shoving a 100 Snickers in your mouth. Uh, And that's simply not the case. Um, While a diet low in carbs can help people achieve certain weight loss goals, uh, obviously they're not always detrimental to your health. It says, uh, of course, if you're allergic to gluten or have any related intolerances, of course, you're going to remove the bread products. But it goes on to look at, uh, ask several different people. Some are bloggers. Some are professors for their input. This Dr. Bruce Haymaker, H-A-M-A-K-E-R, Hamaker, Haymaker, a professor uh, of food science at Purdue University says that bread's bad publicity mostly has to do with how uh, certain carbohydrates are digested. So, And then he points to the glycemic index, of which a lot of our listeners are familiar. So essentially he's saying if it's traditional white bread or fast-acting stuff, it can cause blood sugar swings. So he's kind of blaming the glycemic index, um, at least in part, uh, for this bad press that bread gets. Uh, It says some carbs are better than others. Uh, It's advisable to stick with breads that are whole grain options with added fiber. Now, I think that's an interesting addition that he said with added fiber because that whole grain label claim has always irked me a bit. Uh, And and I'll get to that in a minute. But I'm I'm always like, meaning what exactly? Uh, In any case, uh, Haymaker believes that we're set up to be on a – we're not set up, rather, to be on a carbohydrate-free diet – uh, for the rest of our lives, uh, and that, in fact, we need a certain amount of them. Uh, for example, our brains and bodies need carbs to function properly, so eliminating them entirely um, purely because of a fad diet uh, would not be worth it. Uh, they have important roles in the digestive tract, metabolic, and nervous systems, and I don't know how we've really done deep dives into the brain's reliance on glucose unless you're fat adapted, but I think that's what he's getting at. And then finally, it just says, make sure you look for fiber and whole grains and other foods in your breads, including the insertion of things like nuts, seeds, legumes, um, other things into the bread, because a lot of people who do eat bread are still not getting enough fiber uh, every day. So that was from USA Today, like I said, a little dated, but I just got it, which is why we're bringing it up as quote-unquote news, Um, but... Mike, you're the flexibility guy. Does that make sense to you, what, what was written there? Do you have thoughts? I mean, it, I always go back to for for what population. You know, the average 
person whose butt's glued to a couch cushion who doesn't exercise, I'm probably not going to put bread at the top of their list of things they must eat, you know. But if you're, you know, a heavy lifter or doing a lot of exercise or even endurance athlete, then having some bread I think is perfectly fine. I agree with the statement about even whole wheat bread is just kind of colored to look like whole wheat bread <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. So you have to actually look to see, you know, what what is it actually made from? And looking at the fiber content, as you mentioned, is probably a good way to get an idea. You know, if it's whole wheat bread and it's got like, you know, one gram of fiber, it's like, well, maybe it's not so whole wheat. You know, if you look at the bread and it weighs like five pounds and you can see seeds and nuts in it, yeah, you're probably going to be a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's just, yeah, it, it also drives me insane that something that's, what do you think as simple as bread becomes incredibly complicated too um and the gee the glycemic index i think is just kind of a bunch of bunk anyway you know what he's trying to describe is glycemic variability right so if you are not able to handle a lot of glucose you take in a fair amount of glucose you can see massive upswing in blood glucose and you can usually see a drop on the other side and there is good data to show glycemic variability is definitely a risk factor for you know diabetes and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But again, that's not necessarily based on the food per se. It's the food plus your body's reaction to it. Right, the machine. You can't just say that X food is now good or or bad. It's you know for who and for what population. Yeah. To be fair to them, uh, in the article they do mention we don't want to label things good or bad. You know, yeah, that oh, kind of good. that nice. kind of thing. Um, I agree with that. They also say something that made me think of Phil, which was uh, they mentioned that we can't look at carbs only as a vehicle to get other nutrients in. But I remember years ago, Phil, you had mentioned that for our population, for people that might want to be eating lots of food and gaining muscle mass and whatnot, mm-hmm. carbs are a, a handy vehicle to get other things in your mouth. I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the main thing. Like we've talked about it before. Like my diet basically stays the same. Whether I'm going up or going down, what changes is the amount of carbs that go in. Yeah. Uh, yep. I add a lot That's more that. of them in. You know, yeah. I add a lot more of them in when I'm going up. Um, it's fast fuel. It's There's no denying it. I mean, I haven't met anybody where I can, like, feed them well and give them lots of carbs. And then, okay, let's go train. And they're like, man, I feel great. You know, as long as it's not, like, an hour before we go training. Sure. But, you know, um, you go into a... A lifting session or competition overfed, and I mean you're gonna do well. I mean there's a reason why runners like load up on carbs and stuff before they go run and things like that. You know, it, it's beneficial to have a fueled body in all aspects of your macronutrients. Yeah. So well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, what's more attractive to pile your meat and beans into a, a burrito or a tortilla? You know, there's mm-hmm. your carb vehicle helps get it in your mouth and a delicious way instead of just yeah. eating beans and meat crumbled up on your plate sort of idea yeah yeah you know. um okay well yeah i thought that was interesting uh stuff there uh i once had a conversation years ago with an industry person a phd person uh, about whether or not there is anything even in whole grain breads that you can't get elsewhere uh, and it's an interesting question, like what nutrients might be in bread, either enriched or otherwise, that might not be in other things, including there's all kinds of uh, phytochemicals and enterolactone, or there's different kinds of things that could show up 
in a whole grain. But, you know, I don't have comprehensive knowledge of you can't just get those from other things. You know, bread is, I think, throughout history, a, a metaphor for nutrition almost, you know, like bread and butter, you know, phrases like that. So, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it provides lots of things. But even that whole grain, is it absolutely required? I think the keto people are sort of living proof that maybe not. I mean, you don't see people that are uh, in on keto diets getting beriberi. And pellagra and, you know, a lot of these like B vitamin deficiency diseases or or whatnot. So uh, anything that completely reduces variety in the diet, though, does make me a little antsy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just harder to get everything in, whether you're doing a keto or a vegan approach. And I think you can do it and there's definitely better ways to do it. But the amount of conscious effort, especially if it's new to you, is going to be a lot higher. And if you want to invest that time and effort, then I think you could probably get away with it to a point, again, depending on your goals. But a lot of people just want to switch to whatever the latest trend is, and they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bill Campbell, uh, Dr. Campbell mentioned uh, a little while ago that he didn't think a lot of people could stick with straight keto diets. And a lot of this does come back to motivation or whether you're competitive or not, right? Like Bill, a lot of his research are on people who aren't necessarily competitive so complete removal of, of any one thing, for me, that better have a hell of an impact. You know, that I better get some real benefits from that because if I'm not in a competition mode and I just want to make incremental improvements in my physique or something like that, I don't know. Do, I, don't, I don't know if I want to get rid of the, the pleasure of having something with crust or bread, you mm-hmm. know. So. Yeah, and we live in a carb-centric world too. I mean, if... The thing that's probably the most easiest to get is carbohydrates if you had to pick one of the three macros. Oh, agreed. Yeah, the whole, the freaking, go up and down the aisles in a Walmart, right? And I've taken pictures. (laughs) They're all combinations of refined carbohydrates and fat, but primarily, yeah, it's the sugar and starch, you know. Yeah. Totally. One last bit before we go to break and we talk about absolute minimums and keeping track of your training. Also from the Institute of Food Technologists, this is brief. Sugar binges may increase the risk of inflammatory bowel disease. So I'm just talking about how bread is not necessarily bad, according to one author, and now they're saying sugar may be worse than we thought. I know we're talking about two different kinds of carbohydrates here. And listeners, of course, sugar and fibers are forms of carbohydrates. That's something it's hard for me to get my undergrads to sometimes pick up on. They'll say, I'll say, what's good about Gatorade? Oh, it's got fast-acting carbs. Well, what's bad? Oh, it's got sugar. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes, the the fast acting sugars are the point, and they are a carbohydrate. So okay, so sugar is a carbohydrate. It says short term increases in sugar consumption could increase the risk of inflammatory bowel disease and have a significant impact on our health. A new study from the University of Alberta suggests. And I bring this up because there are a lot of people I know in the fitness world and otherwise, mostly women, in fact, that struggle with IBS related things. I don't want to say it's only a a sex-specific thing. It's not. Um, But there seems to be a a preponderance there. It says, published in scientific reports, this is a study on mice, um, found increased susceptibility to chemically induced colitis and more severe symptoms after only two days on a high-sugar diet. Uh, One of the authors here, let's see, I believe it's senior author Karen Madsen, said, quote, we wanted to know how long it takes before a change in the diet translates into an impact on health. In the case of sugar and colitis, 
It took only two days, which was really surprising to us. We didn't think it would happen so quickly. And then they go on, if you want to know what happened, they looked at intestinal tissue damage, uh, bacterial permeability, right? That bacteria, we want to leave that in your gut, in the lumen of your gut, not in your bloodstream. Um, Defective immune response. And it says these problems were alleviated when their diet was supplemented with short-chain fatty acids that are normally produced by quote-unquote good bacteria. And I think the idea here, of course, is that eating high-sugar diets or decreasing your fiber intake, you're not feeding the, the right populations of bacteria. And they say here it could decrease um, some of the good because you're not feeding the fiber and increase the quote-unquote bad microbes like E. coli. Uh, that are, of course, associated with inflammation and, and health problems. So if you know someone with IBS, gosh, only two days. Like, what did we just do on Thanksgiving with the pumpkin pie? And <laughs> <laughs> and if they, they, if they start to have problems, it's like, well, let's face it. Thanksgiving, for most people, isn't just a one-day event. It's probably at least the two days that they're talking about here. So that could set you off. Now, again, this is mice, and it's chemically-induced colitis. Um, but it doesn't bode well. And again, it's back to the gut bacteria thing that we've been, oh my God, you guys, I think it was probably like four or five years ago we first mentioned that this was going to be a trend. You're going to hear about it a lot. And here it is. So, Okay. Uh, one last thing before we go to break. Phil, I, w- I just got to know. So after all of your eating up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you were grateful not to eat what did you do at Thanksgiving? Did you still un, un, unleash yourself again, or how did you? Uh, no, I didn't go crazy. I had like one plate of food and a little bit of snacks in there. I didn't. Uh, I, I I still don't want to eat a lot, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, so, yeah, I didn't go crazy. Okay. I mean, I had a good amount of food. Nothing <laughs> insane. I just wondered if it, if it sort of not ruined your Thanksgiving, but right, but like. No. Uh, no, I mean, I still had everything I wanted, but I just didn't like fill myself to the point I have been the last. 15 weeks yeah so, yeah it's like i'm done with that for a while so even yeah. pre- presented with all that stuff at thanksgiving you're like yeah i'll just eat like a normal person yeah, i'll just have a plate i'm good yeah so <laughs> okay yeah. all right we're gonna break uh we have three questions and that we're gonna tackle about absolute minimum training capacities Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this. Hi, listeners. This is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. 
Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. (laughs) 
All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil, and it's Mike, and it's Lonnie, and we're going to talk about absolute minimum training capacities. Uh, we started touching on that in a recent episode, and I thought we could get into that since it's just us today with the, the news and the gym talk. Um, now, let me ask you, Mike, because you were the one who brought this up originally. Why would you monitor your absolute ability a minimum, absolute minimum ability in a lift or a particular type of exercise? Yeah, so two things I've, I've noticed is, one, when I travel, if I don't have an absolute minimum that I still want to be within range, coming back home and getting back on a sort of normal-ish schedule, oh, man, it's so much harder. And the amount of time and effort to maintain something versus gain in whatever ability, uh, big difference. So for example, like I did the, just participated in the grip competition in Finland in August. And so that was kind of my main focus, you know, going up to that, but I was still doing, you know, cardiovascular rowing, that kind of stuff. And was, you know, gone kiteboarding in July, most of the month, came back home, was doing rowing out there and everything. But I didn't do that much the end of July through August in terms of cardiovascular stuff. And when I got to Finland, I found out they had a rower, which was like the last day I was there. It was hidden off in this secret room somewhere else. I'm like, I'll just go run for a while. You know, nothing crazy. Man, I didn't feel like doing it at all. I'm like, ah, it's not my main goal while I'm here anyway. And when I got home and started doing some rowing again, it was just horrible because mm. I really didn't do anything at all um, and so it took me about three weeks just to kind of get back to where I was before and so then I like oh so I have minimums for lifting maybe I should have a minimum for you know kind of cardiovascular performance too and right. then I think mentally it helps you if you've got a lot of high stress or travel things of that if you're still hitting your minimums you know that you're at least maintaining and that you're probably not as far off as what you think if you're always measuring your ultimate high end you'll see more variability in that and i think mentally that can be very hard you know mm. if your max deadlift say is 400 and you go to the gym and you can only pull 345 you're like oh my god everything's a disaster i'm getting weak you know it's, it's all gone to hell you know but if you know your your minimum is three reps at 345 whatever it is you're like oh i'm not too far off you know i'm, I'm probably going to be okay and then the second part is from training i've had better luck pushing up the minimum and knowing that the the max will go up because the minimum i'm trying to reduce the variability and find a weight that i can hit like phil was saying if you're sick you know not a ton of you know huge amount of warm-ups obviously it's a heavier load you still want to warm up and just can i do that at a higher frequency so I'll take the minimum and I'll just see, can I hit that almost like every day, every other day, you know, maybe twice a day if I get crazy with it. Um, and so I'm getting more of a frequent exposure to it. And that I know that if that minimum is going up, when I feel good and maybe take a little bit of a taper, my max is almost always going to be higher. And that way I'm not always kind of on this mental roller coaster kind of going up and down all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now, Phil, what your response was, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase, and you can correct me here, that you rather have someone work at an eighty percent capacity and just keep, even though it's not balls to the wall, one rep max, you rather work mm -hmm. in that range, even if you don't know what 
some of your lifters one rep max is exactly right yeah no most definitely i mean part of this is you know something i took from ed Cohn in one of his talks a long time ago you know he's a believer and i guess i am too that our bodies only have so many one rep map repetitions in our life you know you've only got so many shots at something truly heavy as a strength athlete so reserve those for the platform and i think part of that is just the also the ability to get injured at maximum weight you know why are you taking that risk on the platform yeah. and uh when we should do it in a meet but yeah for so for me and it's it's also i'm a little weird now we're in this day and age where everybody wants to be like the world's strongest man tomorrow and <laughs> i am i am blatantly honest with all my clients and i'm more about you know the 10-year plan type of thing i want to build athletes that were around for a long time like who are the ones that there's a reason ed Cohn's remembered it's yeah. because he was great from like 16 to 40. <laughs> you know, he yeah. didn't come in and squat a thousand once, then go away. You know, he did this stuff over and over and over and over again. Um, and that's the type of athletes I want, the ones that stick around. We don't want to hurt them. Uh, I don't have the benefit of like a Russian system where I just get like 600 disposable athletes and the four that, <laughs> the four that are still alive are the ones that go to competition <laughs> for me. Right, <laughs> right. So I, I build these people up slowly and uh, – it's just a, a safer means to do it, and I don't, I don't feel from what I've seen, I don't, I don't see a benefit in going heavier than that. Um, I think we're actually getting better results by going a bit lighter and crushing weights at all times. And if you know, if I can get you to to crush your eighty percent, well, maybe that's not eighty percent anymore. So that eighty percent keeps creeping up, and I know if that eighty is higher, let's say if I bring your your easy squat from four hundred to by three to 500 by three i know that max is bigger without even going there so why right. do we need to go there until yeah. competition now so. i'm guessing some people still get nervous they're like i'm working in that 80 percent range like phil says oh, and all the time. and you got to reassure you have to reassure them no trust me not my first yeah. rodeo your one rm is higher oh, especially the high school kids because they're used to being in programs where i'm dealing with the high school kids around here they're in programs where they like max all the time Oh. And they, they just don't know the difference. Like you don't need to max to, you know. At the most, I try and bring my younger athletes maybe once a quarter. So once every three months, we'll go up and kind of test something. If that's a three rep, a five rep, a one rep, whatever. But that's the minimum amount of time is once a quarter. So four times a year, we'll go to something really heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think you need to go any more than that. For my my older athletes, maybe it's once or twice a year. I think for uh, athletes in team sports, timing's a big deal, too. I was talking to some football players the other day, and they're like, yeah, they're making us do like 90 and 95% lifts mid-season. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. "Mm, I'm not sure. You know, the traditional sort of NSCA approach is more like just maintain during the season, guys. You know, you're not going to try to break new strength ground in the middle of a football season. And so I, it reinforced to me that the timing of this matters too, you know, like mm-hmm. working in that 80% range just to stay, like you said, w- without destroying, without completely wringing every ounce of energy out of your nervous system and getting one of those what should be reserved efforts um, and doing that every couple of weeks, even mid-season, it just seems more sane to me to mm-hmm. try to keep your reps steady or maybe gain a rep or two in that 80% range. That way you know you're holding steady when you need to or you're progressing when you need to and you're not you, you know you're not squirting the entire can of lighter fluid 
on the system, <laughs> you know, to make it happen. Well, that's, I mean, and it can't be understated, especially with athletes that are getting stronger. You know, I'm dealing with athletes that are many of them squatting over 700, 800, 900 pounds. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't go no, to right. 90%. I mean, like, like with, with Big Brian before he did the 900 and 900, there's so a 900 squat, 900 deadlift. I think the heaviest we went was like 815. That's freaking heavy. Right. You know, and I, I know if he can blow that up, you know, it's, it's less than 10%. There's 10% jump. You know? Yeah. So. I think um, one of the things that powerlifting does at a higher end is really emphasize that you have to consider gross totals or gross maximums. Uh, absolutes and not just relative. Like like we said a hundred mm-hmm. times, those percents they just break down so badly. If somebody can squat nine hundred pounds, yeah. You know, so. Um, okay, let's ask you, Mike. What variable? Like, what what's a good movement and what's a variable that you would use to monitor that? So somebody you want like minimal warm up. You you're in a hotel gym, provided they have. <laughs> heavy enough weights or whatever but you're just in a you know not dead cold but sort of minimal environment you don't have to be primed and ready you can just go do it without thinking twice what's a good movement or a variable and by variable listeners i mean like would it be reps total reps at 70 percent would it be i don't know with bodybuilding is it something anthropometrics like you you break out the tape measure or is it visual so uh, uh, an exercise movement and then how you would monitor that. Yeah, so what I look at is what are kind of people's main goals and what kind of transfers. So I like using not percentages, but just uh, number and normally uh, rep goals for most lifting exercises. So, for example, for myself, when I travel, eh, I can go to the gym and take the 70-pound dumbbells if, they have 70-pound right, dumbbells right. in some hotels. Um, but if I can get at least 10 reps on a flat dumbbell bench, nothing heroic at all, I'm okay, right? In reality, if I'm at home, that's like you know probably 10 to 15 pounds per dumbbell off of where I might actually be. But I found if I can just keep that minimum, which is quite a bit off of even my normal rep count for that at home, I'm okay. I'm not that far out. I'm like one to two weeks kind of off, you know, being back to where I was before. Um, so I'll pick that. If it's a body weight thing, I'll pick push-ups. Um, for like a grip type thing, I'll use, you know, fat grips or some bigger implements. You know, in a perfect world, I'd use fat grips on a bar. And like I was here yesterday, and if, if I can hit some reps of fat grips at 205, 225, double overhand, two-inch grip, it's okay. It's nothing great, but I'm I'm probably not that far off. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of cardiovascular, for the, I'll use the rower because rowers are pretty easy to find. You automatically get all the metrics from them. So for a 500 meter, if I'm at yeah 137, you know I'm I'm pretty happy. A 2k, if I can get under eight with an RPE of a seven or an eight, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, so I I tell lifters and people just. You know, what are the things that are important to you? What are the things that you want to kind of maintain and have a minimum? And then a lot of times you're going to be limited, as you said, Lonnie, by equipment. So you may have to modify them. You know, if I'm at home, I can be like, yeah, you know, singles or doubles on an axle at 235. But most gyms are not going to have an axle. And because it's a grip type thing, 
I can get away going closer to a single or a double, so my grip's going to fail before anything else. Uh, for most minimums, I'm not going to have a single or a double as the minimum for an actual deadlift. It'll be a three to five or maybe even eight rep max. Mm -hmm. Because from a safety standpoint, that's going to be a lot safer than always trying to measure your, your single or your, your double capacity. Right, right. Uh, no, understood. To your point about the dumbbells, uh, I'm badly detrained right now because of work. So I went in, I'm like, well, absolute minimum. So I grabbed my 70s yeah. like you do, and I did my three sets of 10 to 12, and not a problem. Um, so I can still do that. Now, weirdly, I got sore. Even my upper back got sore. I'm like, so I am oh, wow. detrained. But at least I was able to do it. You know, yeah, yeah. and it's that kind of thing. I mean, it was literally after work, you know, I'm changing in my office, throwing on some sweats and going down there to, damn it, make something happen. And it was sort of that absolute minimum check, you know. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad I did it because I'm probably on the verge of losing that ability because I got sore from it. So sometimes I know soreness isn't an ideal guide, but. Um, yeah, but I've used that. Like if I've not done a movement for a while and I I do the minimum and I'm just ungodly sore. I'm like, Oh, I probably did not have as much exposure to that as I thought I did. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause normally I don't really get that sore, but my frequency is relatively high too. So yeah. I agree that that can be a, a useful indicator also. Yeah. A thermometer. I know it doesn't correlate with all the other markers like creatine kinase yeah. in your blood and everything, but it, it, it's a reasonable marker. I still think, but yeah. repeat um, about effect is kind of disappearing. Right. Yes, exactly. So what about you, Phil? Like, I, in one sense, it's different in that you, you have three major lifts, um, mm -hmm. but people mix in various amounts of accessory work. So yeah. um, which would you use for an absolute minimum? Do you kind of keep an eye on their absolute minimum, let's say, squat? Uh, or might you use something else as a proxy? How do you go about that? Well, and it depends on the time of year and things like that because there'll be times like with my power lifters in the off season, we do a lot more work, um, just general work, than I think a lot of other teams do. I don't believe in out of shape lifters, you know, and, and to do the training that I ask them to do, they need to be in some sort of strength endurance shape. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll spend time in the off season. Okay, we need to bring you back up because, like me, right after this meet, I'm not in any kind of shape. So. <laughs> uh, as far as like uh, endurance wise or anything like that. So we'll take time to build that back up and then come back into the, uh, we do a lot more assistance work in the off season. Um, and the, the work gets a lot more targeted, uh, in season, but usually off season we'll still take stabs, uh, at that 80% range. So like if you're squatting, if you're a 700 pound squatter, we're going to take some shots around 550, just to keep, uh, just to know it's there. We don't need to go heavier than that. As long as we can always do that, I know your max isn't really going down. Um, if we can knock even one rep there every now and again. So uh, we'll back off a lot of the main moves. We'll do less volume on those and more on other stuff uh, just to build up weak points and things like that. Like, oh, I've got one lifter that just went to record breakers with us, and his big thing is, like, we need to bring his back up and his glute strength up. So we're going to target that. We're, I'm not just going to hope a bunch of squats fixes it. We're going to do <laughs> extra work on that stuff uh, because all the squats we were doing before aren't fixing it. So, um, And then I have arbitrary ones like for myself set my own head. Like I always had one with chin-ups. Like if it ever dropped below 16 when I was weighing about 265, 270, 
okay, it's time to work chin-up again, chin-ups again. And I'd work chin-ups until I could do 20 um, if it ever dropped below 16. So, And that would only take so much time uh, to get it back up to there. So um, that's just personal goals in your head. I think it's good to have those. Like this is my baseline. Like I, I can't go to a meet and not bench 315. Right. You know, it's yeah. just unacceptable. So um, – but and other than that, I so really don't So those done care. in a row? Are they done over sets, or how would you do that? No, that would be like the, for myself. If I could not do sixteen in a row, I would sixteen in a row start cool. doing them. And now I just can't do them. Uh, I can do them, like I can still, but I pay for it for like four or five days because of my yeah. shoulder. So I I gave up on those, even though I think it's a great move. But uh, you know, yeah, and I just it's it's so individual for athletes. I have some that are just just out of shape and sloppy. I have some that need to eat more and get less in shape um, for their <laughs> sport. I mean, that's funny to say, but I mean, you can be, especially in strength sports, you can train yourself too much in that other stuff uh, to be good at your sport. If that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of people that are really good at hitting a 10 rep set. Like that's nice and all, but your sport is a one rep sport. So we need to get good at that. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that at some point but uh it's identifying your goals and then mapping your abilities to that you know kind of weighing it on the uh not the outlier but the average you know you look at the average great power lifter and i'm sorry they're not they're not cardio junkies they're just not it's not part of the sport that said they're not out of shape um most great great lifters are you know if you ask them to do a bunch of work they can do it and I have some lifters that are pretty good that I can wreck them with a training session. It's like, you should be able to live through this. So we got to get your capacity to work capacity up to where it can do that. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, I guess, one final thought about in bodybuilding, actually, because it's a visual sport, just to kind of add this to the mix, I still would probably lean toward performance minimums. Like, I don't think it's a good idea. To say I, I have to keep my arms at least 17 inches, right? Because that, that's really hard to measure unless you're doing skinfold corrected mid-arm muscle area assessments or something like that, or you've got an ultrasound or something. It'd be hard to actually measure tissues or size. I mean, maybe body weight in general, but of course that can be very uh, deceptive. Like I know my set point, my body likes to weigh right around 200 pounds. And it'll hold that whether it's mostly muscle or mostly fat. At least that's what I've mm-hmm. noticed. Um, so that's not a great goal either. I just think the performance stuff is probably the way to go, even mm-hmm. if performance is not your sport. Right. Yes. So. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, if you can go in and squat 405 for 10, you got some muscle. You know? Right. I mean, that's yeah. right. You can't not. <laughs> you, right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You can't not yeah. have some size at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful for uh, listeners. Just a little bit of discussion about absolute minimum capacities. So uh, something to listen to over the holiday, post-holiday weekend. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Yeah. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose 
based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, Knee sleeves, wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.